Hello and welcome to Romaniacs. I'm Dorian Linsky. This week, Keir Starmer, golden boy of the centre-left, has been revealed as a hypocritical moneybags because he... Let me check this. Bought some land so his disabled mum could look after some donkeys in her old age. Is Labour in the pocket of Big Donkey? Let's ask <laughs> our first panellist. Ben Stewart is one quarter of the fortuitously named guerrilla campaigners led by donkeys. Hello, Ben. Welcome back. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Yeah, all right. Uh, Labour supporters said that whoever followed Corbyn would be attacked by the right-wing press from one angle or another. Is it a promising sign that even Daily Mail readers thought that Keir Starmer, donkey farmer, was a, a <laughs> scoop? Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of an own goal, wasn't it? I mean, for for those listeners that didn't see, see the story, it's worth explaining it very briefly that Keir Starmer, when he was making a bit of money as a um, barrister in the 90s, bought a field around the back of his mum's house so that his mum, who was um, disabled, could look after donkeys. So Starmer bought his mum a donkey sanctuary. It doesn't feel like Watergate. It doesn't feel like <laughs> recommending injecting yourself with bleach it does feel like a dud um and all that it seemed to do was actually unite labor and even the kind of corbynite wing of labor got behind starmer at that moment this is a story that just doesn't seem to have any kind of shareability whenever i hear one of these scandals i kind of think can you imagine a couple of mates on a bar uh, at, at a bar having a drink trying to convince each other of their political view now if you're saying, look, Corbyn supports Hamas, whatever you think of that story, then it's going to have cut through. If you're going to say Cameron was a member of the Bullingdon Club and chucked £50 notes at waiters after they trashed a restaurant, it's going to have some cut through. Starmer owning a donkey sanctuary really doesn't at all. I mean, I'm, I'm struck when we started Led by Donkeys, we got so much shit from two quarters, one from the Brexiteers and two from donkey lovers who thought they were insulting donkeys by calling it led by donkeys. There is a big donkey constituency. People love them. And um, as a total winner for Starmer. I mean, um, you know, it's got no cut through whatsoever. Um, Harry Cole wrote it, who's um, a very silly man at the moment on Sunday that's about to be the Sun's political editor. So maybe we're going to see more of these kind of stories in the Sun. Exciting. Uh, led by donkeys, who are in reality uh, lovable animals, um, have been spotlighting greedy business owners who've been taking bailouts or letting their staff go during the crisis. It's been interesting looking at various companies and seeing whether they look after their staff or whether spoons. Um, <laughs> who, who, are the, who are the villains that you've been targeting so far? Uh, well, Tim Martin from Weatherspoons was was one of them. He's had a he's had a shocking crisis, and then Sir Philip Green, and Sir Richard Branson. But the real point of what we were doing was try to highlight the heroes in the NHS and the care sector and juxtapose what they were doing against these kind of people. I think the government's got very little political room to actually bail these guys out. Actually, I think if voters conclude that the furlough scheme is being ended for them but not for Monaco registered tax exile billionaires. It's going to be a pretty tricky sell. And Sunak's personal ratings are pretty high at the moment, and he won't want to see them trashed, I think, by bailing those guys out. Yeah, and haven't haven't like Poland and France, I think, already said there won't be bailouts for tax-avoiding companies? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I think um, Scotland, obviously, uh, Nicola Sturgeon also saying it. So, yeah, England, England needs to get with the programme on this one. Has it was a lot of, lot of fun seeing uh, Lord Ashcroft mock uh, the snowflakes of modern Britain and how they would have fared in the Blitz, considering that he's uh, tax registered in Belize, which is not yeah. the kind of behaviour which won the war against Hitler. No, it really wasn't. Uh, and um, yeah, I think um, um, Aaron Banks has been spending some time out there as well recently. Isn't it funny? They're all the patriots. Yeah. Naomi Smith is chief executive of Best of Britain and a podcast powerhouse. Naomi, welcome back. Hello. Hello. Uh, 
The government's immigration bill was given its initial approval in the Commons on Monday. Priti Patel has been crowing smugly about the end of free movement, uh, which seems at this moment not just cruel, but but unrealistic. Um, will this points-based system uh, be fit for purpose uh, in the recession that we are currently plunging into? Uh, well, look, one reason I'm a Romaniac is because I'm a total immigration ultra. Okay, I would actually be perfectly happy with, I think, with totally open borders. Uh, So I'm not holding out hope that this bill will ever fully satisfy me. Um, But I think one interesting thing was that there were some uh, Labour MPs that abstained on this, uh, including Yvette Cooper. Um, uh, So she abstained, she didn't didn't vote against or or vote in favour. But she said she was abstaining in the hope that the bill can be further amended before its final reading. And she raised the really important point of the disproportionate impact of coronavirus on migrant workers, this huge number that have died um, and called for a positive migration system and to ditch this hostile environment narrative. And so I think public pressure can build to soften it a bit over the next few months. Um, So it has to go for its, its third reading. Uh, It was only the second reading that was passed uh, earlier this week. But, you know, let's not hold our breath. They're still pushing the trope about the moral argument of allowing non-EU migrants to have the same access as EU migrants. Um, But can I just take a moment to give praise to the actor Mira Sayal for her absolute burn of Pretty Patel on Twitter. She said, we clap for the immigrants who are on our front line with one hand and slap them around the face with the other. And I think that just beautifully sums up uh, that, that bill. The pick for Britain uh, scheme, um, it's got an army of fruit and vegetable pickers uh, you know, led by Prince Charles. <laughs> Not the army, the army where we led by Prince Charles, the campaign is led by Prince Charles and some Tories. Um, because we're we're down to about a third of the of the capacity that we normally have of people to to mm. pick the stuff, um, that does rather show how much we rely on on migrant labour. Um, and it seems like if you joined that problem up with the immigration bill, you might come to a rather different solution. Yeah, um, and uh, look, I'm no royalist, uh, but if Prince Charles wanted more Republicans to, you know, favour him as a future king, he'd roll up his sleeves and get out there and start doing the picking himself. Um, he'd only do know. asparagus, wouldn't he? Only, like, only the posh veg. Uh, 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 it, it's just, I mean, look, he's got his side hustle anyway. So he, he, he is a benefits claimant because, you know, he's sort of largely taxpayer-funded. Um, but he has these side hustles over at Ducci Originals or Duchy Originals, however you're meant to say it, where I think he earns a... A pretty penny. So yeah, why doesn't he just roll up his sleeves, muck in, and get out there picking veg and fruit himself, and and then people might be more inclined to support him. Uh, you interviewed Hilary Benn for the Bunker Daily this week, and he said that MPs are answering concerned emails from constituents at all hours of the day. Do you think people will expect sort of more from their MPs once this is over? Mm, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure that they will. Um, I think from that interview, the thing that stood out for me was how he said that he's now doing these weekly pan leads, uh, phone calls, Zoom calls or whatever, with all of the MPs from around the area, with the local authority and the the relevant health professionals. Um, And I just think it's a real pity that that sort of stuff just wasn't happening anyway. Why did it have to take for a a huge crisis for that to happen? You kind of hope that... Uh, you know, all all of the regional leaders would be having regular contact anyway. So I think, if anything, I hope MPs will have a different idea of how to behave in more collegiate, cross-party, cross-sectoral boundaries uh, to do what their constituents need. 
It's very centrist of you. Joining us this week is Rachel Stern, Germany editor at the Europe-wide news website, The Local. Rachel, welcome. Hello. Um, do you th- are German people uh, bothered uh, that they apparently now find it harder to come here after the immigration regulations come in? Do they do they want to? <laughs> are, we are, enti- are we an enticing destination right now? Um, it's very much up in the air. I think that the UK, as with the US in the past, was one of the Germans' top destinations, either for work or for studying. And that's definitely been changing over the past year. Um, up until the end of January, um, there was obviously quite British heavy media coverage here. And since the beginning of March, the eyes have shifted a little bit, but I would say that as a whole, um, Germans are still considering the UK as a destination because, as you know, there are so many um, German companies which are still based in the UK, and that will remain the case even at the beginning of January next year. Um, so far, Germany's been seen as a as one of the beacons of good practice regarding COVID nineteen, um, but obviously citizens are more critical of their, of their own government. Uh, it's always easier to praise somebody else's. Um, how does it feel uh, to you? What kind of uh, support is there for the government? Yeah, that's a really good question. So Germans were about 50-50 when it came to loosening the measures that had been in place since the middle of March, and about two-thirds of Germans in a recent survey said that they were Um, in favor of the way that the government had been handling the corona crisis. There has been a really large protest movement throughout the country, um, and a lot of people thought it would be in the former communist East because that area had been quite impacted with um, loss of jobs. And But in the end, it seems that people have been protesting the heaviest in Stuttgart, which is the center of the auto industry in Germany. So if you read the German news, it seems like quite a lot of people are unsatisfied with all of the protests. But as a whole, I would say that most Germans are satisfied with the way that their government has been handling everything. And and are the protests dominated by the right in the way that they are in, in Britain and America? Or are they more sort of bipartisan? They're actually more bipartisan here. What's really interesting is this is probably the first time in recent history that both the far left and the far right have been coming together to protest. Um, These protests have been getting compared a lot to the 2015 Pegida protest against the wave of immigration but those were pretty much just the far right. And what's different this time is that it's kind of a mishmash of conspiracy theorists, um, anti-vaxxers, libertarians, parents who simply want to send their kids back to school again. So it's quite diverse. It's always fun when the far left and the far right team up. Exactly. (laughs) Um, On this week's show, with the third round of Brexit talks over and no more progress made, is the EU about to cut our herd of donkeys loose from the paddock? Plus, Rachel will be rejoining us later to discuss the latest from Germany, and we'll have a roundup of the rest of this week's Brexit news. All that after a few reminders from Naomi.
One of the few upsides of the COVID lockdown is that we've all become very familiar with each other's back rooms, cupboards, kitchen nooks and understairs cupboards via the miracle of Zoom. And you too will be able to marvel at the Romaniacs and Bunker team's hidden hideaways, including Dorian's Donkey Sanctuary, because we are about to announce our next Bunker versus Romaniacs live stream very soon. It's exclusive to Patreon people. So if you're not already backing us on the crowdfunding platform, now is a very good time to sign up. You'll get first news about the live stream and exclusive access every edition of Romaniacs early and without ads, plus the famous mugs and t-shirts. Search Patreon Romaniacs now to sign up and be the first in the queue for that live stream. We're even rearranging our bookshelves to make ourselves look extra clever and hiding all those pesky Tom Clancy books. Many thanks to everyone who's contributing to our Patreon. We really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to seeing you on, well, watch your inboxes to find out. Thanks, Naomi. First up this week, the third round of negotiations between the UK and EU has concluded. Before coronavirus, the typical deadlock between London and Brussels could have cost billions if handled badly. But now the stakes are even higher. Civil servants tasked with fighting the virus have been redeployed to no-deal Brexit planning. Naomi, uh, we thought that the the hands of the no-deal doomsday clock had been set back. Uh, Where do they stand after this latest round of talks? Good question. Um, So these were the penultimate uh, round of negotiations between the UK and the EU ahead of that all-important deadline at the end of June for extending the Brexit transition period, which of course itself ends at the end of this year. Um, and, And it you know, you're right, if, if a trade deal is not agreed by then, we leave with no deal. Um, and effectively, what happened at the end of the week was that there was no progress, none, none whatsoever. And both sides called on the other to, to get real and totally reconsider their approaches. The UK is claiming that it is really only asking for stuff that the EU has already given other countries in free trade agreements, um, countries like Canada and Japan. And the EU is saying, okay, fine, but if you want that kind of a line-by-line bespoke thing, it's going to take far longer than the very few months that we've got left, particularly given all of the time that COVID has stolen from us. Um, And so, yep, we've had civil servants get pushed back onto no-deal planning and away from uh, coronavirus crisis management. Uh, So the government certainly is you know, ramping up preparations to cope with no deal should it happen. Um, but earlier uh, today, before we started recording this on Wednesday, UK and a changing Europe under Anand Menon had produced a, a new survey showing that the vast majority of sort of social policy experts that they spoke to um, think that there is very, very little chance of a deal being struck this year now, uh, and that the majority of them would then favour and extension. So I think we're still in this sort of brinkmanship phase. We may see some kind of breakthrough in June, or we may see that June deadline come and go and both sides panic again later on in the year and come to some kind of arrangement. But uh, we are probably a little bit closer towards no deal this week than we were last. And is David Frost's uh, phrase an Australian-style departure, which which sounds quite pleasant if you don't think about it, um, a way of kind of <laughs> a, a sort of a, a kind of a advanced rebranding if it if it comes yeah, to yeah 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 I mean look Australia doesn't have a trade deal with the EU so yes an Australian style departure it's kind of like um, the hyacinth bucket of Brexit you know she pronounces it bouquet but it's still bucket you can pronounce it Australia but it's still bloody no deal 
Um, and, and yet again, everything the UK claiming it wants is, is this kind of cakeism thing. They want to call it Australia, but the list of demands that the UK side are asking for adds up to something that is, you know, beyond even the, the deals that, that the EU has done with Canada and Japan, things like integrated supply chains they want, recognition of professional qualifications. And really what this is sounding is is uh, the reality that the UK government knows full well the cost of erecting trade barriers, particularly now. They think the EU are going to blink. Uh, they, they spun that that's what happened at the end of last year when Johnson claimed to have got a deal. But let's remember that only happened because he did what Theresa May refused to do and threw Northern Ireland under a bus. And the EU is too big to be bullied into all of these kinds of demands that the UK is uh, now clamouring for. So I think it remains to be seen who or what Johnson surrenders next uh, in order to get uh, some more of what he wants. And I'd, I'd say watch out fishermen and farmers. Well, let's look at the Times thinks that Johnson uh, wants to be the good cop to David Frost's bad cop, do what he did before, secure a deal at the last minute with concessions, which he doesn't like to talk about. Um, does he have political room to do that it seemed that part of, in my impression was a large part of the energy behind the last election and the get brexit done message was really like really really meant just get it out of the way so we don't have to think about it which makes me wonder if the public unless they happen to be fishermen or farmers um would actually be quite tolerant of some concessions which you know in a previous life were, were, were red lines yeah you're right um at best of britain we're constantly uh, taking the pulse of the nation on all of this and in particular we've been focusing on conservative voters and the new conservative voters the ones that flipped away from uh, labor and other parties to the conservatives in december and you know they they, they are very strongly in favor because of the time that's stole, that has been stolen by coronavirus of an extension so that we can do it properly they accept that brexit is done it's happened now we need to get corona done uh, and they get that and they want that and they don't want a thin crappy deal they want the time to be taken once we're free of the distractions of having to sort out other stuff. Um, and that's even leave voters, nearly half of leave voters, 49% backing an extension, and that rises to two thirds of people overall. So there is very little political risk for the Conservatives uh, for, uh, for going for this. So why? So you think that they, they therefore will, because all the language so far has been that they won't. But like you said, there's, there's no, it's, it's obviously the right solution pragmatically. Yeah. And you're saying the political risk is much lower than one might have thought. Yeah. So you think it's just going to happen, but it's going to happen at the last minute? I think it could happen at the last minute, but I do think that there are zealots in cabinet um, and there are pressure, enormous pressures, particularly from some of the big uh, grandee donors within the Conservative Party that have always just wanted, let's go WTO, as that hideous phrase was coined by them last year. Um, so some of them do want this and, and believe that the economic impact of a very, very hard slash no deal WTO style Brexit can just be buried as a rounding error within the enormous cost of uh, coronavirus on the economy anyway. Um, I, I think they would quite like to get a deal to claim that that, that they've done it, but I think that that will be the thinnest of deals that they will want. Um, and uh, how, that said, I think things are shifting. I think there are signs, particularly from uh, those that have more, um, uh, you know, domestic business interests that, that, that within the party that are deeply concerned. And those new uh, MPs in the red wall seats, you know, they they didn't get elected on on the promise of uh, of us crashing out with 
particular damage to their areas, which will be hurt first and worst. Um, Ben, back in the day when we were all uh, fighting to stop Brexit, we often uh, relied on on kind of the, the kindness of the EU. And we worried, you know, one of the big worries was that we were worrying about our drama in Britain, but actually they were just going to run out of patience and they were going to sort of cut us loose and not not give us uh, an extension. Um, Michel Barnier recently, um, very withering, said, we'd refuse to commit to guarantees protecting fundamental rights and individual freedoms, repeated yet again that we can't have the best of both worlds, RIP cakeism. Uh, do you get the feeling that, 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 that they are about to sort of cut us loose and that they really wouldn't, the whole, the, the, the David Davis's dream of the German car manufacturers uh, changing their minds <laughs> won't come true. I mean, I get the impression that they just don't have the political bandwidth to deal with Brexit. And I'm not sure they even need to cut us loose because we're cutting ourselves loose. I mean, I really, I defer to Naomi's understanding of the political situation. It seems to me um, that the UK looks very unlikely at the moment to ask for an extension in six weeks' time, and that would increase the chances of no deal. And um, I mean, certainly Number 10 would, would really like to construct a narrative that allows the Brexit press to blame Brussels for that. Why do I say it doesn't look like they're going to ask for an extension? It's not just that they say they weren't, won't, it's also that they've done nothing, like nothing at all, to prepare their own supporters for a potential extension nothing to soften them up. If anything, their supporters' position seems to have hardened since the crisis first began when people like Isabel Oakeshott said that we should ask for an extension. You know, for my sins, I have a subscription to The Telegraph. So, dear listener, I read it so uh, so you don't have to. And when I read it, I see a hardening of the position amongst that group of people that has a lot of influence where I don't think they would accept an extension. Of course, Boris already has big issues with the libertarian wing of his party over lockdown. And I'm not sure how he can disappoint them again on Brexit. Like, we know it's fucking insane, but that's where the politics of this thing seem to be at the moment. So, yes, the polling shows that your average British voter would be really happy to accept an extension, but lots of people within the kind of conservative firmament really wouldn't. Well, Bonnie mentioned Michael Gove suggesting that we ask for zero tariffs, zero quotas, which would definitely require the extension that we uh, may well not ask for. Is that, is Gove sort of, daring them to trigger no deal is it going to be uh, just a sort of a blame is it setting them up for a blame shifting exercise if you accept that the government are going to go for no deal then it's obvious that they don't want to pay a political price for that um in the age of corona and that they would want brussels to have to accept the blame for it and of course they have a really powerful megaphone in this country with the brexit press that allows them to a certain extent to kind of mould the national conversation. So, yeah, um, they will want to blame Brussels if that happens. How successful would it be? I don't know. There's this kind of interesting dynamic developing, even amongst some supporters of the government, um, where their record for competence is being severely challenged, severely challenged by the corona crisis. And you wonder how that's going to play into any perception of kind of extremism or a lack of um, concern for the economic plight of normal people from a no-deal Brexit. The two things are going to play off each other in a way that I don't think we quite understand yet. And, I mean, there are more important things going on um, than, you know, sort of Westminster office politics, but Gove is running the no-deal planning committee. He's he's a very ambitious fella. Uh, a lot of people have been talking about him kind of angling for, for Johnson's job. Um, 
do you think there's any a- attempt to sort of pin uh, no deal on him? Like, like you said, you know, that, that, that it may well not go well and that they're going to be looking for someone to blame. God, that's super cynical of you, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Like, is Gove next in line for Johnson's job? You know, when Johnson was in intensive care in hospital, no doubt people in the Conservative Party were thinking who, who, who could possibly take the job. Gove is one of those people that's kind of radioactive to the general population. Pretty Patel has sometimes been mooted as a leader, but if you look at her personal poll ratings and the latest polling, I mean, they are horrendous yeah. in the basement. And, you yeah. know, Gove comes across as, you know, I think Gove comes across as a sociopath, you know, but actually Gove comes across as a very unsympathetic, unsympathetic person. Um, but he is possibly vaguely competent. Um, and if you look at the kind of cabinet of nodding dogs, who are you going to give no deal planning to? You know, indeed, who are you going to put at the centre of decision making over Corona? It's more likely to be Gove than some of the other people around the cabinet table. So I don't, I don't necessarily perceive some kind of conspiracy to get him kind of holding the shit sandwich when the shit goes down um it's just it's just that of those 23 or 24 people he seems the only person that can possibly actually meet an objective in in that um i mean you probably i'm sure you have the figures in front of you but um in those kind of personal poll ratings is, is anyone except rishi sunak uh looking good Unfortunately, Johnson's not looking bad. I mean, I know people like us get pretty excited when when Johnson's numbers fall by seven percent. Keir Starmer's have gone up quite a lot, but historically, for a prime minister, he's, he's in he's still in a pretty good position. And the Labour voters that shifted to the Tories in 2019 love him. Love him. They, they, love they him. do love him, and um, it's going to take it's going to take a lot more to shift. That so Johnson's actually in a pretty good, pretty good position at the moment. You know what happens over the next year if the perception lands that he's really fucked up coronavirus? Don't know. But I said in the podcast a few weeks ago, you know, us holding our breath and waiting for reality to to dawn. Well, look, you know, our kind of ideological colleagues in the US have been waiting for three years for that to happen. Yeah, with Trump. yeah. and it's shifted a little bit, but the guy's still at forty five percent. And he wants to inject bleach into his voters. And he makes, you know, Boris Johnson look like Lincoln. Which is almost a problem for us. I mean, when we point at the incompetence mm. of the Johnson administration, I think a lot of people think, well, you know, he's pretty bad. But, you know, if you look at the United States or even Brazil, which I think is going to be one of the big corona stories over the next few weeks, you know, I look at that and I think, well, you know, soon Brazil is going to overtake the other European countries and possibly the UK. And the leading nations for the death toll of Corona are going to be the US, Brazil, and the UK. And you know, look at that. Like, what does right wing populism do do for people? We did great. No, we did. Uh, we did. I did a bunker daily recently with Don Phillips about Brazil, and just the, the facts are just, I mean, unbe- unbelievably hair raising. Uh, He's worse than up, Trump. Worse than Trump. Hell of a thing, yeah. Which is incredible. Um, Naomi, just before we wrap up on this, um, uh, some. Uh, items including baking powder, mirrors, and garden shears, all the essentials, uh, will supposedly get cheaper after January the 1st, according to the government's tariff plans. Uh, but less important items, such as beef and cars, uh, could become a lot more expensive uh, if we get no deal because they, they're not getting a zero rating. And um, what do we need to know uh, about these these tariff plans? 
Well, look, on, on tariffs, I'm sorry that I'm not Ian Dunt. Um, Who is? <laughs> but uh, it has always been clear even to lay people like me that um, a no-deal Brexit would raise the price of imports from Europe. But the precise effect can now be pretty much quantified because the government has published this tariff list. Um, so we can expect tariffs on automotives, agri-goods and fisheries. So that will make uh, cars significantly more expensive, but also tasty things like pasta, tomatoes, meat, fish, wines, cheeses. Um, But as you say, there will also be reduced tariffs on things that are less tasty, like padlocks and mirrors, and white goods coming in from non-EU countries, like, uh, I don't know, like a fridge freezer from Turkey or something. But I think, look, I mean, if you look at what's happened to sterling this week, I mean, it rose a little bit yesterday, but the, the general decline has been... Uh, in the in the downwards uh, direction. It's worth noting, therefore, that any gains we might make from reduced tariff changes are almost certainly going to be wiped out by the weakness of uh, sterling anyway. Good news. So, bad news, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, it's the, it's the usual bad news that we serve up to our listeners every week. Sorry, guys. Joining us this week is Rachel Stern, German editor of the Europe-wide news website, The Local. Hi, Rachel. Um, Hello. How has it felt? I mean, we're obviously looking with, with great uh, curiosity at what's happening in Germany. How did it feel when the, the lockdown was eased? Was Were people kind of hungry to take advantage of that? Or were there a kind of lot of nerves after, after several weeks behind doors? Um, on one hand, it felt like the lockdown had been eased even before it had been eased. I would say that a lot of people were gathering in public parks, um, groups of more than two people, as was uh, what was permitted under the lockdown, were going out and about. Um, a lot of people just seemed eager to return to their lives as normal. But that said, there have still been a lot of nerves, even in the center of Berlin, There's a lot of restaurants and cafes that will only offer takeout, even though they're allowed to serve in the restaurant, um, just because there's strict standards that they have to adhere to, such as wearing face masks and making sure that their tables are spaced 1.5 meters apart. So there's definitely um, some nervousness going on still. And football has also resumed, um, but in what form? How's that working? Yeah, so over here there are so-called ghost games where the teams are allowed to play but to empty stadiums. And they've been both praised and criticized for this. Um, On one hand, as you probably know, football is the pride of Germany. And for a lot of people, it's a sign that the country could still have a bit of normalcy. But on the other hand... um, you know, the Bundesliga has gotten quite a lot of criticism because football is able to resume, but at the same time, um, kindergartens can't yet open their doors and a lot of other faucets of society haven't been able to open up. So uh, people are asking, why do these multimillionaires get to resume, whereas we still can't send our kids back to school? So is that yet another addition to the German language now, the ghost games, like the, the Geistspiel? Exactly, that's it. I I love new German words. (laughs) Um, What schemes has the government got in place over there to pay people who can't work because of of COVID-19? Is it it similar to to what we've had here from Rishi Sunak? 
Yeah, so the government has a scheme called Kurzarbeit, which is basically when somebody's working hours are reduced, then the government will pay the employer in order to compensate for the rest of those hours, and that stops the person from going on full um, unemployment. And there's been a historically high number of people who've applied for this Kurzarbeit system, I think a little over 10 million now. But that said, it's also possible if you're a freelancer or a small business to receive a direct grant from the government. And the German government has been both praised and criticized for um, easily giving out money to those who applied. And I think those grants could range from 3,000 to 10,000 euros just to get people on their feet again. And Germany's Labour Minister has announced a new right to work from home bill that will last long after the pandemic is over. Do you think this is going to see a sort of permanent transformation of of working culture? And I mean, are people up for that? Yeah, I really think it will. Here, things have been quite traditional for quite a while. I mean, Germany was even using the fax machine as a main mode of communication. So I think that such a bill is really overdue and that working from home um, because they have to has showed a lot of Germans that this is indeed possible and that um, Germany is able to communicate digitally if it really wants to. And, and thinking about the politics of it, um, how's the how's the opposition faring? Is is that you've mentioned there was quite a lot of support for the for the government? Does that mean that the opposition is sort of struggling to? to land any blows, whether that be on the left or on the right? Yes and no. Um, So one of the major parties here, the Free Democrats, has been a really big um, voice in the opposition and have even been going to some of the protests themselves. They're kind of the pro-business party. Um, But at the same time, Merkel's um, center-right CDU party has been the one that's had the strongest voice and everything. But I wouldn't say that the protesters on the streets are just radicals. They have included a lot of politicians. And earlier we were talking about the EU negotiations stalling again. Um, you mentioned earlier, obviously, that since since January, um, some, something has come along to take everybody's mind off Brexit. But is there a... I mean, what for, the, for Germans who are actually interested in what's going on with Brexit, what's the sort of general feeling is is there a sense of because this has been a long process is there just a sense of you know exasperation go already you know what what how are we viewed yeah um well there's been a lot of jokes in the german media that brexit just shouldn't happen because they can't take anything else after the coronavirus um and there's also been a lot of commentary in the media that it doesn't make any sense that it's still going to happen um, with such a dire economic situation at the moment. And without Britain, Germany is is easily the sort of strongest power left uh, in the EU. Um, it was obviously always always had that central role. Um, but how does how does the country feel about having so much of the response, even more of the responsibility for the future of the EU falling on its shoulders? Does it does it sort of do, do, do the public generally welcome that? that leadership role or resent the fact that they have that responsibility? From what I've been reading and seeing, it seems like Germany is trying to seize the opportunity to develop more of its business interest here. 
And I've been seeing um, a lot of advertising trying to attract event Brits to Germany or reading about um, factories that have been closed in the UK, but then German operations, on the other hand, have expanded quite significantly. So I think on one hand, they're trying to really look to the future and how they can take this to broaden the economy. But then on the other hand, Germans see the UK as a really key industrial partner and are quite nervous about what's going to happen, especially since there's not a clear and concise plan in place yet. And um, finally, talking about that sort of that leadership role, um, often when ambitious plans come up, such as, as Corona bonds, um, Germany, not just Germany, Netherlands as well, but Germany is the sort of major uh, dampener on those plans, which has sort of angered a lot of Southern Europe. It, it sort of caused tension with France. Um, do you think that the sort of countries learned from um, – the sort of the criticism it got after the 2008 crisis for the, you know, the way that it sort of was, was, um, was blamed for imposing austerity on, on Greece. Does it want to be, I suppose I'm wondering how much does it sort of care about its sort of image in the rest of the continent uh, versus, you know, the economic bottom line? Yeah. So I think that Germany was trying to step up to the plate quite early during the corona crisis, not just financially, but also medically. Um, It was one of the countries that was taking in patients from hard-hit countries such as France and Italy because it actually had enough availability within its hospitals. And I think it's also been looking to form more partnerships. For example, yesterday, a $500 rescue package Um, between Germany and France was just announced. So I have the sense that Germany is not trying to bear all of the responsibility as it might have in the past. Yeah, well, that's that's positive. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Uh, Listeners can see the locals' German stories at thelocal.de. How is government coping with the pressures of these extraordinary times? What innovations are needed to face the challenges of the strange new world we're in? And what can the past teach us about how to run a country in times of crises such as these? We need to work out a better way of holding accountable organisations actually accountable. At the Institute for Government, we're dedicated to better government. And throughout the lockdown, we're turning our famous debates, panels and discussions into a new listening experience, IFG Live, so that everyone can hear the best ideas and most original thinking for improving the way our government works. We have to be able to do big things fast before a problem is staring us in the face. That's IFG Live from the Institute for Government, now available at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now for our segment, To the Barricades. Each week, one of our regulars picks a fresh cause for Romaniac's listeners to get stuck into. Uh, ben, you haven't chosen one in a while. Uh, what are you going for this time? I am going with a shout-out to Generation Rent. So it's not an organisation, but the demographic. I'm talking about the millions of younger people who can't afford to, to buy a house and whose incomes are now severely threatened by, by the crisis. So 
Last week, the London Renters Union called on people in financial difficulty over corona to pledge online to withhold enough of their rent to meet their basic needs, including food and bills. Uh, analysis by um, NEF, the, the New Economics Foundation, showed that about 1.2 million private renters in the UK are going to fall through the cracks of the government schemes to help workers who have lost income are designed, are designed to defend. So those people really face a life kind of scraping a living on benefits. Now, I mean, rent strikes are pretty controversial, especially if you're a landlord. But for my To the Barricades pick, I just ask people to think about generation rent. Now, they're, they're, they are fucking scared right now. And they're going to be paying for this crisis for years, you know, maybe decades in, term, in terms of national debt. And, you know, they're one of the least threatened age groups in terms of virus mortality, but their financial present and their financial future is getting screwed to protect people who call them snowflakes. Um, So shout out to Generation Rent this week. Thanks, Ben. Finally, a roundup of the rest of this week's Brexit news. After a long legal battle by a woman from Derry, all British and Irish citizens born in Northern Ireland will now be treated as EU citizens for immigration purposes. It means her husband will be able to apply to remain in the UK under the EU settlement scheme. Naomi, the change has been agreed by the government after challenge from Simon Coveney, Deputy Leader of Fine Gael, who said the law did not align with the Good Friday Agreement. Why has it taken them 23 years to change this law? I think for the, the simple reason that no one envisaged that they would need to do it. Um, uh, and that's why I, I don't think there's any, anything more to it than that. They just it, it wasn't needed until it looked like uh, Britain was going to do what it did. It's happening pretty late in the day. People affected will have only have until next year to apply. Um, is, is that enough time? I mean, I confess I don't know exactly how many people it would affect. So, as I understand it, it it, it affects. Um, people who are born in Northern Ireland who are now of course eligible and have always been actually eligible to apply for Irish citizenship without having to surrender their British passport in order to then uh, remain EU citizens but for those people who have partners husbands wives spouses etc who are not from an EU country or, or the UK who would then need that um, that settled status so that so that they can stay. So um, hopefully it isn't too, too, too many people um, and therefore the, the, the timing of it isn't um, quite so dreadful. But, you know, our friends at the 3 million are the ones to listen to on this. You know, they, they know their onions on it and have themselves been saying that although the government is spinning the number of applications as being huge and therefore the 3 million almost entirely having been um, covered already and made their applications, it's just not true because they're counting the number of attempts people have made. So it can often be the the same person trying multiple times to get through the system rather than the full cohort of EU citizens who need to have applied to have done so by now. Ben, the union's having a, a wobbly crisis. This seems to confirm Nicola Sturgeon's fears that Northern Ireland would enjoy better rights than the other devolved nations after Brexit. Um, is this, and I guess other things that have been happening recently, disagreements over policy, you know, health policy between the countries, is more ammunition for independence movements? Are they going to uh, emerge stronger from this? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, but the, I think the bigger Phillips has applied in, in the SM, SNP is the, is the performance of the UK government in this crisis. I mean, the, the fundamental question for a Scottish voter is why the Conservative Party incompetently exercises non-devolved powers over Scotland when the Scottish people didn't vote for them. So, for example, the UK decision not to join the European PPE and uh, ventilator procurement schemes, despite being invited, or or problems with the NHS app um, 
which I think are going to emerge as a big story in the next couple of weeks. Sturgeon says she won't recommend the app for use in Scotland until she's sure it works. And you know, right now we're not we're not sure when that will happen. So I guess you know the question: What does the union do for us? It's hard to answer when the union is being governed governed by by the Vote Leave campaign and their governance is characterised by thermonuclear incompetence. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's hard to say. Stay with us, yeah. Scotland, uh, at this moment. Elsewhere, the Liberal Democrats have released a report into their performance at last year's general election, which is at one point subtitled a high-speed car crash. So uh, a mixed verdict. <laughs> it, it identifies the party's promise to revoke Article 50 and its decision to position Joe Swinson as a potential prime minister as key mistakes in the campaign. Ben, obviously, I mean, their drive to stop Brexit appealed to us and i think we we debated i think we as a podcast we're quite divided over over revoke as a policy which is clearly designed to give them some sort of um to sort of outflank labor as labor moved towards a second referendum do you think in hindsight or perhaps you thought at the time uh that revoke was a step too far and it sort of made them a single issue party and perhaps an unreasonable one for for a party that often its appeal is that it's it's very sensible and it's in the middle. Yeah, um, totally, one hundred percent. And and this isn't just hindsight. I remember I was with the other three guys from Led by Donkeys when the revoke policy was revealed, and we, I mean, we just thought, no, this doesn't this doesn't feel right at all. I mean, I always thought that a second referendum was a high bar to get over in terms of democratic justification, but it did get over that bar. You had to make the case strongly, and it did get over that bar. I think we. You know, we won that debate, but but straight out revoke. I think it was damaging to our side of the Brexit debate. I think it was catastrophic for the Lib Dems, and I thought it was very very difficult to to defend. Really, um, I'm not saying that's the only reason they did badly in the election. Um, you know, Joe Swinson didn't didn't work as leader in the end, but I think misogyny played quite a big part in that. She was an ambitious young woman, and and too many people unreasonably don't like that and are uncomfortable with that. Um, and the Liberals don't do particularly well when Labour scares Tory centrists. So Tory Remainers decided they were more Tory than Remainer because they because they feared Corbyn. So there are a whole bunch of things going on there. But I think the remote the revoke policy didn't work politically, and and for me it it, it didn't work because I didn't think it was um it was democrat democratically defensible. Um, Naomi, we did a, a live event at the Lib Dem conference with Sarah Williston um, when they announced the revoke policy. Um, and I, I know, speaking for myself, at the time, I wasn't like Ben thinking, oh, well, this is this is a disaster. I was kind of like, I don't know, it appealed to the kind of, the more kind of dramatic Remainer side of me. I was just like, yes, go all in. Uh, but, I, you know, then there was the more hesitant side. I was very sort of divided on it. Do you think uh, that was... Um, that was a mistake and if it was was it the main problem um i i think i said at the time that i thought that revoke would have worked when they were as they are now um back in the kind of six to eight percent opinion poll rating level um you know shortly after the the 2015 general election i don't think it worked for them in the autumn of 2019, just as Labour were getting pretty damned good on their Brexit policy, um, and it just seemed churlish and like they were they were trying to outflank them with a, a Remainer audience. Um, uh, that said, I, I mean I think you can defend intellectually the the democratic argument of it, but you can't sell it in a pithy message to a floating voter on the doorstep. 
you know, uh, overcome that that issue of, um, well, you know, the country voted in 2016, so we can't just revoke. Um, whether it was their single biggest mistake, uh, I don't think it was. I think their single biggest mistake was over-targeting and being too broad and too wide um, and believing their own hubris um, and their own flawed data. Um, and the report was pretty clear that once the data did start to shift and show that they weren't going to be able to pick up anywhere near as many seats as the data was showing them uh, over the summer, um, they didn't change their strategy. Uh, and that, that's pretty unforgivable um, and, and cost uh, a lot of really good candidates um, their deposits, not just their, their seats. And of course, you know, hurt the entire country because it meant that, uh, you know, in no small part, um, Johnson was able to get that 80 seat majority. Um, but let's not underestimate the impact of both Johnson and Corbyn uh, on the kinds of voters that they were going to need to squeeze in the seats that they were trying to win. You know, there were just so many um, people afraid of of Corbyn, the Tory Remainers, as Ben said, that they just felt they couldn't come over to the Lib Dems. But similarly, you know, there will have also been uh, some, uh, you know, Labour diehards in Tory Conservative, in Lib Dem Conservative marginals that would just you know, couldn't couldn't believe that the um, uh, the Lib Dems could do it, and so stuck stuck with Labour. Um, but many many sins, and I think the the biggest sin of all really is is ignoring the evidence that was right under their nose. And I did the day after the election have a very long rant about that on Romaniacs, which people can mm. go back and listen to if they want. Um, yes, which is quite ironic given the criticism that Best of Britain's tactical voting uh, recommendations received at the time. But there we go. It was almost as if they were uh, motivated by bad faith. Now, how do you think this report, uh, its conclusions, will affect the Lib Dem leadership race, which is actually having been postponed to 2021, is perhaps the only event in the world which has been brought forward. Forward, uh, yeah. And is and now meant to happen in, in, in July and August, which is... Yeah, I, that's right. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't quite yeah. Understand, I, I don't quite understand why. Maybe they just feel that they're so irrelevant at the moment that they've just got to do they need to do something. anything something yeah. yeah maybe maybe um it was it was pretty unconstitutional of them to not consult the membership before they made the announcement to delay it just just so you know there was not an insignificant amount of pushback internally about that and the, and the feeling that the, the labor leadership contest in, it, in its latter weeks had been able to be very effective at, at doing it online and so why couldn't the Lib Dems do that so I think there was that pressure too um I think the report probably has hammered home the point that anyone associated with coalition um, is just going to have far too um, own own goal uh, stuff thrown at them, you know, in the future. So I think Ed Davey, having been a minister um, at DEC throughout coalition, um, is as tainted with all of that stuff that can get thrown at them uh, for having backed austerity and supported Osbornomics and top-down reorganization of the NHS and blah, 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 um, which is all very valid criticism that they deserve to get, in my opinion. Um, and I think I think it would be difficult, therefore, for the Lib Dems to do well if Ed Davey continues as leader. Um, lots of names have been rumoured. Some of the candidates have um, announced that they will be putting themselves forward for the nomination. Um, but actually, you know, some of them haven't yet, and some of the best candidates haven't yet, including Daisy Cooper, who is the MP for St Albans. Um, and uh, remember, she's only been 
in post for six months. But often the ones who don't crave power are the ones that, that most deserve it. So, um, yeah, I, I hope she does throw her hat in the ring. So fi- finally, I just want to clarify this. Is anybody, do you think, tainted by Revoke or was that enough of a collective decision that there's nobody that could be blamed uh, if, if, you know, if that is indeed now like a toxic thing? I mean, they they all stood on that platform at the last election. Um, uh, but I think it was mostly seen to be synonymous with Joe Swenson. So hopefully that policy can can get left behind with her. We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit Bridge, where we've replaced our petrol fueled machinery with a fleet of special Starmer trained donkeys. It'll take us a while longer, but just think of the carbon footprint and it will look adorable. Naomi, what's your choice for the bridge this week? So um, I was thinking back to my own um, school days a long, 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 long time ago and how we used to do exchanges. So in the summer holidays, you might do a French exchange or a German exchange or a Spanish exchange, and you'd go and get to live with somebody your own age um, for a week or more in their country. And you might even get to go to school with them if their school was still open in the holidays, in the British summer holidays. And you'd get that real sense of connection to Europe and understanding of other cultures. And I don't know that that happens so much anymore. And I really don't think it happens um, in the state sector, um, which is a, a huge shame. And I was just wondering that that now um, schools can't reopen and it's certainly sounding like they're not going to reopen now um, anytime soon, given the failure of the, the track and trace efforts from the government, that wouldn't it be great if we could do some kind of um, online Zoom-esque uh, foreign exchanges um, and that that would, could be so much more democratised now and it wouldn't be contingent on your mum and dad having enough money to pay for your ferry or your flight or whatever. Um, I thought that might be a really lovely thing we could do so that the next generation um, have some more lovely exposure to European culture um, before they reach adulthood and decide to vote uh, Tory. Oh, that's lovely. And there's no dan- there'd be no danger this way of like the cool French kid coming over and uh, and impressing all the girls at your school. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you're stuck on you're stuck getting on out s- his school wires. Yeah. <laughs> you're stuck on Zoom, Jean-Luc. <laughs> and that's the show. Thanks to Ben, Naomi, and our guest Rachel Stern. Now time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. You can get their music from their website, ampleplay.co.uk, and also on Bandcamp, which is waiving its fees again on June the 5th, so that all money spent on their website goes directly to the artists. Uh, having written so about, cool. Well, having written about uh, music industry and basically the enormous financial black hole left by the disappearance of live shows, um, spending money on, on, on Bandcamp rather than just streaming um, does actually make a kind of significant difference to the artist's well-being. Uh, And as we listen, some thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello and a low tariff thank you from me to David Fairman, Michelle Miscala, James Wise, Meg Thomas, Fona Fiona, Eleanor San Martin and Lucy Wimster. And Lucy, if that's you that lived um, with Laura and Kate and Abby in Leeds, uh, get in touch. I'd love to reconnect with you. But if it isn't you, thanks anyway. And many thanks from me to Vicky Lagdon, James Spilby, Kirsty Randall, Rory Carter, Becky Wordsworth, Brenda Kelly and Jenny Wigley. And finally, thanks from me to Peter Moore, Arabella Neville-Rolfe, Simon Lee, Tom Robinson, Donna Vintner, Paul Gilfeder and Keith Dowsett. Take care out there. We'll see you next week. 
Remain X was presented by Dorian Litsky with Naomi Smith and Ben Stewart. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.